Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We are into a new season, and it's exciting and packed with the wonderful events that we have grown accustomed to. We all have high expectations, and it continues to be better each year. Fun is what we do best here at Bighorn. My name is Marty Lockman, and I have the privilege of introducing you to the fantastic people and stories that make up the Bighorn community. These episodes are brought to you with the support of the following people. Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, who have been part of our community for almost 80 years. Their involvement in the Coachella Valley goes far beyond their commercial endeavors, and we thank them for choosing us as a partner. Bighorn Properties, thanks for supporting us, but also for representing you with the service and knowledge in an unprecedented way. Nobody knows Bighorn better, and their ability to represent both buyers and sellers is unparalleled. Talk to them when you are dealing with one of your greatest assets. Eisenhower Health, whose involvement in our community goes far beyond medical care. They are truly part of our family, and their continuing desire to be the best is ongoing as they improve their facilities constantly. Back Nine Greens, who within their industry have become world-renowned. They will provide for you the customer service and professional expertise that will make your property and your golf game the best it can be. Corliss Estate Wine, who brings you award-winning wines and strong community involvement that we at Bighorn appreciate. Please enjoy their wines available in the poorhouse and the steakhouse. Today we have an opportunity to get to know a fairly new member of our community that has had the same twists and turns, ups and downs that have been part of all of our stories. As our community continues to evolve, the stories are somewhat the same in that Bighorn is a very entrepreneurial membership. And therefore, the story of starting with little, but with hard work, determination, and maybe a little good fortune, everyone has obtained a degree of success that has brought them to our community. Today's guest has that kind of story. John Ply and his wife Cynthia have been members of our community since 2021, and John is with us to talk about his journey, which starts in Chicago, Illinois. John, thanks for being with us. Marty, thank you for inviting me. This is really humbling to do this. My journey began in 1955 when I was born in Chicago, Illinois. I was the fourth of five children. Both of my parents are of Polish descent. My mother being born in America. Her last name was Lubinsky. My father, well, on my birth certificate, people don't know this, but on my birth certificate, it says John Plowacheski. My father, who has to be part of this story of my life because he had such an impact on my future, he immigrated from Poland. But before that happened, when he was 18 years old, he went in the Polish army. And at 19, he was captured by the Germans. He spent the next five and a half years as a prisoner of war and saw the atrocities that took place. And he had to do everything in his power to really never give up, to stay alive and survive. And he did that by doing what he was told for five and a half years. When the war ended, he stayed in Germany for another almost five and a half years. 
helping the United States Army rebuild and work for them. And at the age of 29, 30, he had a choice. Go home to Poland, which was under communist rule. Go to Australia or go to America. Well, the boat to Australia was full. He chose America and got on a boat. And back then, that was not an easy boat ride, back in 1950, 4950. He arrived in Ellis Island with a name. His name was actually Zygmunt Pliwiczewski. And he didn't speak much English, did not have much education. So he took odd jobs just to sort of survive. Eventually, he heard there was a Polish community, a nice Polish community in Chicago. He decided to go there, got on a train, went to Chicago. Took, again, odd jobs. I often think of the discrimination he probably faced with a name like Zygmunt Pliwiczewski and not speaking English. But it never fazed him. He eventually found a job with Swift and Company and became a meat cutter. He met my mom within a year of uh, arriving in Chicago. My mom had a little baby boy, my oldest brother. He immediately fell in love with her and that little boy. And within a year, they were married. Then they had three more, which I was the fourth. And then my youngest sister didn't come for another seven years. Growing up, when I think back, um, I kind of knew we were a poor family. But sometimes I didn't feel that way because my father, in his job, he always had meat. We ate some of the best meat, being a butcher. and got deals at work for the workers. He also worked two jobs. He left very early in the morning and worked at Swift. And from there, my uncle had a meat market, retail meat market, that he would go there and work for $20 and be paid with hamburger patties or other, other meat products. So though I sensed we were poor, we ate good. But uh, part of that would be the fact that there was no spending money, extra spending money in our family. A big treat would have been maybe once a month or two, my father would give us 25, 35 cents. And that was enough to go to a movie, soft drink, popcorn. If we wanted spending money, we were going to have to go earn it. And we really became quite entrepreneurial at a very young age, doing things like cutting grass, finding used soda bottles. Back then, you could return them for uh, refunds, delivering newspapers, those kinds of jobs that we did throughout grade school. And so we got creative to make money. In fact, one time we came very creative with a idea of dragging a pond. It's only pond at a little nine hole course. We would drag it for golf balls, resell the golf balls. And so we did all those kinds of things. So as I think back, I had no idea I would eventually become an entrepreneur. Those are the kinds of things that we did just to have spending money. I, I, the, the realization of the level of, I'll call it poverty, that we experienced came to light one time. I was probably six, seven years old, maybe at the time. And I remember the paper boy came to collect for our newspaper. And it only cost like 50 cents, maybe 75 cents a week for the paper. And my mom didn't have the money to pay the boy. And I could see the tears kind of well up in her eyes. And she just apologized. She was embarrassed and said, I promise I will have it next week. And that kind of put it in perspective, the kind of, you know, where, how, how we grew up. As I grew older and entered grade school, it quickly became apparent that I was gifted 
with athletic skills. And I quickly became a, a very fine athlete. I specialized. My, my, my real passion was basketball. And throughout grade school, high school, and even into college, that was my main sport. But I could play them all. I was the quarterback in football and the pitcher and the, you know, the shortstop in baseball. I, had, I was gifted with that. And that was always a, a wonderful thing. A real turning point in my life came in eighth grade when all my buddies from the basketball team were going on to high school to a private Catholic school called Fenwick High School. So I wanted to go there. Well, as it turns out, my parents could not afford to to pay for my high school. In effect, those were private schools at that time, parochial schools. That's correct. And let me ask you something before we go on. I understand that when you're a child— you compare yourself with other people in the community. And so you don't know that you're poor because everybody else in the community is kind of in the same ballpark. And like you said, you have to, if you want something, it's out of necessity, you have to get a job to pay for that new sneakers or a baseball glove or whatever the case might be. But there is a sense of community in those days. You all work together. I know that if I did something 10 blocks away when I was a kid, by the time I got home, my mother knew about it already. What was that like? Because I would assume in the Polish community in Chicago at that time, that's the kind of neighborhood that existed. Those neighborhoods were just like that and amazing from the standpoint that we never ventured out probably more than four or five blocks in any direction. But everybody knew each other. We played together. We were gone most of the day. You know, we'd leave in the morning <laughs> and until my dad's whistle would blow, it's like, get home for dinner, you know, that kind of thing. So growing up with that type of community was a blessing. I still have friends that I see to this day that are from pre-kindergarten. But those bonds, because you really did look after each other. We truly did. The friendships were so... We were all in the same boat. There were a couple families. You knew the difference. There were a few families that you could tell they were more well-to-do. But it didn't matter. They were still friends, and we just did everything together. Yeah, there was no arrogance or entitlement, certainly, in that time. No way. Not back then. Yeah. Now, the parochial school, a lot of your guys on the ball club are, are going to this parochial school, and you, the facts are, you can't afford to go there. That's correct. My three older brothers and sisters went to a public school in high school in, in Chicago, and that school was changing drastically. It was becoming a very rough school. So uh, that concerned me. They just didn't have the money to send me there. Well, my best friend from first grade, Jack Leeson, who his family, his, his father was a very successful banker, and he suggest, and he was at a country club where Jack caddied. He said, John, you should come caddy. You can make really good money. I thought, wow, I, I can do this. I caddied for the next seven years. And I was able to pay for Fenwick High School through caddying. And having spending money, because we would caddy 36 holes a day, we'd give caddy lessons at night. So we didn't have time to spend our money. So we walked around feeling pretty, pretty flush back then. So that was the first uh, huge thing that came to my life through the game of golf, 
just the fact that caddying, I learned to play golf as a caddy. I paid my way to high school as a caddy. And then the biggest thing that truly changed my life, after my junior year in high school, the caddy master, Bill Cervillo, said, John, are you going to apply for the Chick Evans Scholarship? And I'm like, what's that? Well, turns out it's something special. It's a scholarship given to caddies, boys and girls, who are in financial need, they have good grades in school, and they have good character. And you get interviewed to hopefully get that last one, which I snuck by. And um, lo and behold, I received the Chick Evans Scholarship. You cannot even imagine the tears from my father and my mother that their youngest son, who was, I was gonna, I was gonna be the first to go to college. If they can't afford high school, they could not afford a college. Uh, I was a very good basketball player. I had a, a potentially couple small school offers to go play basketball, captain my basketball team senior year, but the Evans Scholarship was too good to not not go down that path. It brought me four years of education at Indiana University. I majored in finance with a business degree. And uh, while I was there, because of my love for basketball, I decided to take a chance and try to walk on to the team. I knew the odds were slim, but I've learned over the years, and back then, even in my heart, I felt I would regret it if I didn't at least try. So I signed up for tryouts at Indiana University. And that's back in the Bobby Knight days, back when they were really, really, really good. So they ran tryouts for two weeks. And there were 37 of us when we started. Two weeks later, I was there with seven others. And I'm certain what caught their eye with me, because I was a skinny kid, but I had a beautiful jump shot. And I was still there. They cut us all that day and said, thank you for trying, but there's really no one here that can add to our team. Indiana went 31-1 and that year, and the following year, 32-0 and national champs, and 18-0 and in back-to-back Big Ten years. So my timing wasn't very good. But, you know, it was a great experience. I played intramural basketball there, amongst many other sports. So my time at Indiana was Amazing. Did you have any interaction with Knight? A little bit. I caddied for him once in a little charity out, outing. His temper on the golf course was similar to the temper in, 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 in his temper in basketball. But he's a really good man. The press, you know, you know, they focus on the negative, sadly. Bob Knight did more good. When I say more, like 10,000 times more than the couple of bad things that he did. People don't know this about Bob Knight, but in his 27 years at Indiana, every person that played basketball at Indiana graduated with a degree. He had a rule. You go to class or you don't play. And it didn't matter if you were an All-American. So Quinn Buckner, Scott May, Kent Benson, all these All-Americans, I saw them every day going to class. And he was a giver. Bob Knight was a giver. He did so many good things, but you never heard about it. And I, the other interaction, I wasn't personally with him, but one day during those tryouts, the team had to practice at the armory where our tryouts were going. I got to watch from a distance one of his practices. It was something to behold. The way they were 
so organized. He could just blow a whistle and next thing they're running to free throws or three on three or other drills. And if you slouch just going from one exercise to the next, you might be sent home. It was it was really cool to watch that. Well, I had heard, and you certainly, your stories um, support this, is that, yes, he had great basketball teams. And yes, he made these players and these teams into really f- special units. But you even became a better person when you played for Bobby Knight. So when you left school... Very few people go on to a pro career, but they all have to go on in life. And they were better for the experience of being with Bobby Knight than they would have been otherwise. And it's not reported, sadly, but these uh, every one of these players were articulate and have had successful. Some had NBA careers, but even had successful business careers because they, they were educated. They left educated, and I think sports has lost that in terms of they forget that these kids are young boys and even gals in, in their in their respective sports. It's, it's time for education, not just playing the games. And Bob Knight was the ultimate taskmaster. I have to share a great story I just heard about Bob Knight. You know, he recently died. There was this coach, or I, th- oh, it was the, uh, I think it was general manager from Portland or somebody who called him and said, he said, Bob, I want your opinion on something. And, and, and he said, we've got the first pick or second pick that year. And he said, who should we draft? And Bob Knight said, you should draft Michael Jordan. And he goes, well, we don't need a, uh, we need a, we need a center. Bob Knight's comment back was, let him play center, still draft him. And they never did draft him. But they did draft a center named Sam Bowie, <laughs> who, who didn't turn out all that well. So, you go from this disappointment because being one of the last seven, yep. I mean, no matter how you slice it, it's disappointing. And But you can't let that define you. So what's the next step? Well, the next step, I had majored in finance. Again, my best friend, Jack, his father was a very successful banker. I, in fact, I was his regular looper. He had a beautiful home. He belonged to two country clubs. And I'm like, I want John Gleason's life. So handsome banker. That's why I did the finance. Well, I graduated and I met my first wife in college and we got married right out of school. So I started interviewing and I kept being rejected for a banking job. And finally, uh, a little research I looked into with some, uh, actually it was Jack's dad, because I interviewed at the Northern Trust uh, Bank, his bank, and he found out that they were not hiring undergrads. They wanted master's degree people that particular year. This was 1977. And I was growing up wanting to work. I wanted to start making money and, 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 and I was getting married. So I needed a job. I started looking for ads. And then finally, another mentor type uh, influence in my life, John O'Neill Sr., he suggested to me one day, John, why don't you write letters with a resume to all the country club members you used to caddy for. It was his idea to go find a job. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. The tricky part of it all, he insisted I handwrite them, the letters. And I didn't know why he wanted me to do that, but he insisted on it. 
Well, that was a heck of a task because I wrote 50 different, 50 handwritten letters. Well, to write 50 perfect handwritten letters without a scratch out or a misspelling, I went through an awful lot of paper. Then I got those out. I followed through with telephone calls. The first job I found was actually for my wife in the publishing business. I got down to the letter L's, and there's this uh, gentleman. His name's George Lordson. He owns Lordson and Company. I called him up. He said, you know, come on up here. We might have something for you. Gruff old guy, George Lordson. I go up there. They're in what is called the contract manufacturing business. They're providing a blending and packaging service to the food industry. I know nothing, of course, about this. He had an inventory control position open. And I was desperate for a job. And he told me two things that I will always remember. He said, the reason you want to work here is you will learn everything there is to know about running a company. And... We don't give raises on how long you've been here. We give raises on performance. I was always a high achiever in athletics, et cetera, caddying. I took the job. Now, it was very low pay, so low that I wasn't sharing my salary with any of my other college graduates. I knew nothing about inventory control. I quickly learned it's basically more of a bookkeeping type job. And when I showed up at Lauritsen and Company, they were producing a tremendous amount of food product for Pillsbury out of Minneapolis. And this looked like a match made in heaven. I mean, it was happy. There were people from Pillsbury there every day or going out to lunch or bringing lunch in. Everyone was just, this really cool place, right? Fast forward one year, Lauritsen and Company misquoted a large project, and they misquoted it by about two-thirds of what they needed. To make matters worse, this new launch of a product by Pillsbury didn't sell. It was on grocery shelves all around the country, and it was in warehouses, and nothing's moving. And we find out that we are losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, we couldn't do without that money. It's a very low margin business, that contract manufacturing business. So the owner, George Lauritsen and our accountant, and they're meeting with Pillsbury and telling them the situation. And there was culpability on both sides, but we did misquote the project, uh, which is our fault. And this interaction got so ugly. And I'm kind of like the fly on the wall watching all this. Well, you've heard the proverbial win the battle and lose the war. Lauritsen and company won the battle. Pillsbury wrote them a big check. They lost the war. Two weeks later, Pillsbury left. They were 95% of the business. Most everyone lost their job. My boss lost his job. He was the guy who quoted the project. He got fired. I assumed I was losing my job. Day later, George Lauritsen walks into my office and he says, I thought he was going to say, sorry, John, you know. Instead, he said, I'm going to teach you how to sell. And we're going to save this company. Well, George Lauritsen's idea of teaching me how to sell 
was he made five appointments for me out on the East Coast with companies like Nabisco and Nestle and sent me by myself out there for those five appointments he made. I'd only flown once in my life. That was back in eighth grade. I'd never rented a car. And off I go. I remember sitting in the parking lot of the first sales call thinking, what am I going to do? I don't even know. I have no clue. I was clueless. Finally, I just said, all right, I've got to go. I went in there. Marty, these were some of the shortest meetings in the history of sales. They'd ask me six, seven, eight questions. And my pat answer would be, I'm new at this. I don't know the answer, but I will find out. Well, when I got back to Lauritsen and Company, you know, I thought about this and I realized what a great lesson I learned. What, what did I learn? You better know what your product or service is if you're going to sell something. So I learned everything about that company, what our capabilities were, how many pounds we can blend each day, how many packaging units can we package, and on and on. Over the next two years, I brought in 50 different food companies to Lauritsen, completely diversified the business. My promotions came along with it. Promotions, not necessarily pay increases. I became production control, assistant VP, vice president, and I was president of Lauritsen Company at just over 24 years old. He had promised, my, my boss had promised me, I was still making $25,000 a year. Uh, but he had promised me $60,000 a year once we were profitable and also some potential ownership. So for a young guy, this is huge. What did I have to lose, right? When we finally turned things around, those promises weren't happening. I finally had to ask for a raise because we were going to buy our first home. So I asked for a raise and I got a raise to 32,400. It's funny how you don't forget those numbers. And then the whole ownership piece, he first gave me a, a, a little a, a contract, which I signed. Within a week or two later, he came back and said, sorry, I can't do this. You have to sign this, that I, I, I can't part with the, any part of the business. So he, 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 he took that away. And then over the next few months, I noticed something else. He started getting jealous of his 24, 25-year-old guy running his business. He started to do things, you know, um, telling people to run different products because he owns the company. Don't listen. To, I don't care what John said to do. I had to motivate these. By the way, I had to motivate these people. That's one of the greatest things I think I accomplished during that time. Keep people working when there are no dollars. And I made promises too to them. And so when he started overruling me on stuff and one day he embarrassed me and I got up and quit. It was, it was just a spur of the moment thing. I said, I, I'm done. And I remember driving away and something in me, in, inside me said, you know what, John, you can never go back there. And sure enough, I never did. Now I'm in a bit of in a dilemma. What am I going to do? One of my clients who did not like George, immediately when he found out I was no longer there, he went to a competitor to have his product blended. And it was an industrial size package, 60 pound bags of, a, of a chocolate powder. 
he called me and said, hey, John, you know, if you would open up a blending operation, I will partner with you. We could, you know, you could start with mine and you can get in the business. And I'm like, okay, that sounds cool, except for one thing. I didn't have any money. I had no money. Remember I mentioned about learning everything about running a business? Well, the last lesson I learned at Lauritsen was what? Titles don't mean anything. Who owns the company has the power. And so my presidential title meant nothing. In fact, I've told employees over the years that if I ever threaten you with a title, say, no, thank you. I'll take the pay increase instead. So I thought, okay, so I needed to raise $30,000. And I had none of it. My partner was going to put in $30,000. We were at $60,000, and that would be enough to rent a place, buy a mixer, big industrial blender, a sifting piece of equipment that you sift powders through after you, you, you mix these blends, a scale, a sewing machine to sew the bags closed. We also packed in 100-pound boxes and 200-pound drums. I had no money, though. And I started going to banks looking to borrow money. Well, my timing wasn't good, Marty. The prime rate was 21% at the time. This is late 1980, early 1981. I got thrown out of every bank I went into. So I was getting desperate. I needed this money. I went to my parents. They only had $15,000 of life savings, liquidity. They loaned it to me. They gave me their only 15000 They had faith in their son. And then I went into one more bank. It was the bank that Lordson banked at. They knew me. They knew him. I walked in there. Asked, I was looking for fifteen more $1,000. I'll never forget. The VP, Jack Hall was his name. He asked me what I was going to do, how much money, what kind of collateral. He looked at my collateral and he said, John, your collateral wouldn't cover our legal fees, but we're going to give you the loan because we like you and believe in you. So I got a $15,000 loan, two over prime, which meant I was paying 23% interest, which, you know, wasn't very smart back then from a business standpoint, but I did it. And you know what? I was elated that they showed that belief in me. And I remember I could barely keep my car on the road going home because I was excited to start this business, even though the odds of success were probably not that great. But it was the start of my first company called Priority Food Processing. Started out with myself and one Hispanic helper. So with him, we dumped the powders in the, in the mixers, 100-pound bags of sugar and cocoa and flour and whatever. I'll fast forward to surviving the first 18 months. Still just one blender. I probably had two or three employees at the time. I had paid, paid down my loan to $11,000. And I was back in the bank every six months to renew the note. And I went in figuring, hey, I made it through 18 months. I only owe you $11,000. I would like one over Prime, and Prime was falling. Prime was down to 16%. I was paying 18. I asked for one over Prime. They said no. Not only did they say no to the one over Prime, they put a 17% floor 
on my note. And I said, that's not fair. I didn't have a ceiling on my note. So no matter how low Prime would go, I was stuck at 17%. I told them, I said, that's unfair. I'll have to, I, I'm, I would be loyal to you guys forever. You know, that just wasn't fair. They, I said, I'm going to have to go look for another bank. They said, go ahead. Well, that turned out to be the dumbest banking decision, maybe of all time. They let this young kid go for $11,000. Two weeks later, I had a new bank and I had one over Prime. That little blending and packaging, well, which became a packaging company too, over the next 13 years, I built that company into having 120 clients. We had three blending rooms. We had 12 packaging lines. My, my company was five times bigger than Lauritsen after 13 years. I had built, after 10 years, I'd built a beautiful new facility, custom, to do blending and packaging. And so I thought, you know, things were rolling along. Well, two years into that new facility, because of the 120 clients, which was too many and too much business, which is also a potential threat to a company, when you have so much business that you cannot fill orders, you got problems. We became very inefficient. We were doing half an order for someone just to give them something and then having to clean the machines and change them over to another job. We got inefficient and our small margin business was starting to be in trouble. I asked some for price increases and they would say, no, John, we can't give you any more and we'll have to go somewhere else, that song and dance. And I finally came up with an idea. I said, you know what? I'm going to start a second company. I'm going to start a product company to be a customer of my first company. I went to my bank, borrowed $250,000. I hired a product developer, which cost me $75,000 a year. And we started to develop products. Well, after one year, we sold exactly zero, sold nothing. And my accountant, my VP said, John, you, this is not working. We're just going to have to figure a different way to you know, improve our operation. I said, no, this is our future. I'm not giving up. The next year, we sold, not a lot, $220,000 worth of product. Not enough to even budge one client out the door. But on that $220,000, we made $60,000 in profit on the product. It would take us a month to make $60,000 at Priority Foods in the processing business. So that was like, wow, this could work. The next year, a million eight in sales. The next year, four, four million in sales. The next year, $15 million in sales. And people are like, and I'm slowly pushing clients out the door. People are like, oh my God, 15 million in sales. That's amazing. Well, it was also one of the saddest moments in my business career happened that year. My accountant came in my office and she said, her name's Paula Ryan. She said, she said, John, you need to go to the bank and borrow $1 million. And I'm like, for what? 
She goes, we owe the IRS on the profits that we just made last year at $15 million in sales. We made the profit, but we didn't have any cash. It's tied up in what? Inventory, receivables. We didn't have the cash. That was a real eye-opener. I love to tell those to young, younger people that think that, you know, being an entrepreneur, owning your own company is all better roses. It's not. It's, it's, it's not. Never is. But that, I remember my hand shaking as I signed over that million-dollar check. But that's the reality of being in your own company. I solved that problem. We solved that. I should say we, because we're growing at this time, and I've got some great people. We grew to $33 million in sales the next year. We turned our inventory seven or eight times. Never had a cash flow problem again. We continued to grow. We grew to 40 million, then 45 million. At 45 million, Marty, I had let go, we had let go all 120 service clients. And they begged us to stay. Each and every one of them, please, we'll pay you more. We were making maybe 15, 20 cents a case when we did their work. We were making over $3 a case making our own products. So no matter how much they would pay us from a toll pro, it was, it was never happening. I guess they should have given me the increases when I had asked. But um, we continued to grow. And in 2015, just we hit the $90 million mark and I sold my business to a big company. And in, in, in 2015. Congratulations. Thank you. It's quite a, it was quite a journey. A lot of detail I probably left out, but it was, it was, it was quite a journey. Well, I think there's a lot of life lessons, as you mentioned, you know, and I'm sure that you share this as you do with mentoring people and talking to groups that much of learning about a business is running the business. And you learn those lessons as they go along, and you have to have a belief in yourself and the people that are working with you, because otherwise it's very easy to give up. But on the other hand, you have no choice but to move forward because you have an investment, not only in money, but in time and people. But again, it's a happy ending to that part of your life. You know, it, it really is. And, you know, when you reflect back, it's when you, is when you really start to realize, you know, I had... To a, a simple goal for the first company and, a, and the same goal for the second company. We'll never be the biggest. Those industries were around, but we could be the best. And as I reflect back, we actually achieved it in both. My original 120 clients proved that we were the best at contract manufacturing because they begged us to stay. And the second company really did end up being, oh, by the way, I didn't share with uh, you. We became the second either the largest or second largest supplier of cappuccino and hot chocolate in the country. So every 7-Eleven in North America, Canada, Mexico, other chains around the country like Casey's and Wawa and Sheets and Quick Trip, they all had our cappuccino and hot chocolate product in their machines throughout the, throughout the country. And we did private label uh, for people like Target and Safeway and uh, Gourmet Cocos, International Coffees. One, one item we, we produced that my wife got a kick out of when she saw it for the first time. We, we produced the cake mixes and cookie mixes for Easy Bake Ovens for Hasbro. It was an amazing run. My employees were amazing. I did learn a huge lesson from George Lauritsen, and it was about how to really treat people right. He did not have that lesson. 
He did not use it, and it came back to haunt him. And I learned from him that you have to treat everyone well if you want to be successful. Now, you've had this success. Yeah. What's the next step in your journey? You know, it was great to just have the freedom for the first several years of not having... I remember when I sold the business, people would ask me, oh, John, what's it, you know, what, what's the best thing about selling your company? Well, and I, and I always go this, well, the, the financial reward for getting your wealth out of your business when you sell it is, is a given. That's great. The three other things that people don't realize that was really a relief to me, I no longer had to worry about product contamination. When you're in the food business or beverage business, that's a worry every day. All you need is a case of salmonella or E. coli or whatever, and someone dies, your business could be gone. We spent a lot of money on sanitation and quality control to make sure that never happened to us. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. I didn't have to worry when you're in the manufacturing business, and any, anybody in the manufacturing business knows this, when you've got equipment and forklifts and whatever, you worry about people getting hurt, employees getting hurt. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. And then lastly, I don't have to worry about my competition anymore. Even though they couldn't catch us, we were so good. But you still worry about losing business. So once that, you know, once, once that got sold and started to enjoy life, the freedom, start even working harder in the golf game. But recently, one thing as I looked back, you know, one of the things I learned from my father about being generous Even though we didn't have any money, every Sunday at church, he had the envelope for the church. And we all had little envelopes, too, with a quarter and a dime and a nickel. So even though he had so little, he still gave back. And I have learned over the years that true success isn't about becoming wealthy. Uh, it's, It's... Great to get that part of the equation done, but it's achieving little wins along the way. That's what you remember. But more importantly, what do you give back? It's one of the things that's, you know, being here at Bighorn is amazing to learn what a charitable club this is. That means all, you know, the members are made up of similar like-minded people that are want to be givers. So I have spent probably the last 30 years of my life of giving back. And two and a half years ago, I started this project to write my book. You can be the best life lessons from the butcher and the businessman. This book was written for two things. One, to inspire others to dream big. Younger people, especially dream big. Anything's possible. Two, I want to leave a legacy for my dad. I think he deserved it for what he accomplished in his lifetime. And um, his story is in that book quite a bit. So that has been a huge part of my life the last two and a half years, trying to get that accomplished. And I think we did a great job. And I think that book will hopefully help a lot of people. I hope it gets out there to hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of people, because I think the, the, the lessons, the, the values in this book will help people believe that they can lift themselves up no matter how low they are in life. My father is the, is the poster child of that. 
So, yeah, so that's kind of what's taken up a lot of my time the last couple of years and the uh, the never-ending search for a better golf game. Join the club. <laughs> well, we, we've had a chance to play together and, and get to know each other prior to this. And you and your wife, have been uh, Cynthia, have been a great addition to our community. For that, we're as grateful as you are for being here. But I do have some questions for you. Okay. These also will be things that I think people will learn from. And that is, first of all, what brought you to Bighorn? Back in 2003, I was convinced to come out here to Palm Springs by actually a Bighorn member. And I'd been a guest here uh, occasionally. Oh, I, I hadn't been, but he convinced me to come out. And he kept saying how the weather here is so perfect, no humidity. And he said, no bugs. I had always thought I would end up in Hilton Head, South Carolina. I love Hilton Head, South Carolina. So finally I came out here and I was blown away of the beauty, the weather, the mountains, just everything. It was like, this is just like paradise. You get off that airplane in Palm Springs Airport, it's like, whew, decompress. So I fell in love with it. I joined the quarry back in 03. Uh, bought my first house in the desert in 05. Actually bought another house in 07. And then moved into the quarry in 09 with a little house. And unfortunately, even though the quarry is a fabulous club, we just didn't have any amenities. The clubhouse didn't serve dinner. And eventually I met Cynthia in 09. And at, eight, at 2015, we decided to, you know, just, leave, you know, just, Go, go well. I sold the business. We went to Vegas for a few years. You know, people say, Oh, you should go to a tax free state. And we joined the Summit Club up there. And I had no idea how bad the weather was in Las Vegas. We were going to build a house. We killed that project with like a week before breaking ground. And we went from there to Newport Beach. And I, we remembered all our friends in the desert who live along that area and could drive back and forth to the desert. And we said, you know what? We should really consider getting something in the desert again. It's only a couple hours away. So we went looking and Bighorn hit the radar. And when we came here and got the tour of this club from Mike Veneer, uh, it just blew us away. We were halfway through the tour and even, well, I, I knew the golf courses were beautiful, but we had no idea of the amenities, the quality of people, uh, the staff, second to none. And I've been around. I have enough experience in the golf world to know this club has the finest staff and the finest membership for a club of this size. It's just unbelievable. And so it was funny. We we're going around. And we're saying, well, how soon could we, you know, put an application in for membership? And Mike says, well, once you're in escrow. And Cynthia and I look at each other and we go, escrow? You mean you have to own property here? <laughs> Didn't even know that. That same day, we put an offer on a small house here at, at Lake Vista. And um, gosh, a month later, closed escrow and joined Bighorn and like so many other members, they've loved this place so much. A year later, we decided 
let's come here full time. We upgraded to a beautiful home uh, over on the sixth hole and sold our place in Newport Beach. And we love it so much, Marty. Our goal is to spend at least eight and a half months here every year before we go back to Chicago for the summer months. That's what brought us to Bighorn. We say this a lot, but there are a lot of developments around, but this is a community where people really live and get to know each other. And this becomes home. Sounds like you've experienced exactly that. It's it's everything that Mike said it was. During our tour, he said that uh, Mr. Hubbard wanted this club to be the best in the world. Well, I'm here to tell you, I haven't found one better. We all agree. Who had the greatest influence on your life? Now, that's one person, many people. I've been blessed to have a few mentors. Um, Obviously, the most impact was my dad, because as I look back on him, I actually consider him the most successful person I've ever met, because it's not about dollars. It's about what did you accomplish? Where'd you start? Where'd you get to? His story is beyond comprehension. You know, think back to COVID when we were all locked in for a couple of months and we're moaning and groaning about not being able to go to our restaurant or whatever. How about wondering whether you're going to live or eat for five and a half years? And Marty, this man never complained his whole life. All he ever talked about was how blessed he was, how happy he was, how grateful he was. That to me is the ultimate definition of success. So he was, without a doubt, had the biggest impact. He had more impact on me than I realized until I got older. And that's why he deserves what I'm saying. He had the biggest impact on my life. I've been fortunate along the way. Bob Driscoll, my grade school coach, he took a liking to me in sixth grade and worked with me one-on-one to make me the best basketball player I could be. He had a huge impact on my life. My caddy master, Bill Servilla, another man who had an impact on my life. And then I mentioned John Gleason. I mentioned John O'Neill, both of them, huge impacts on my life. Great examples of great men who did great things for others. Very charitable, very successful, kind, honest people. Those are the ones that come to my mind right off the top. I've been very blessed to be around those kinds of people. And you know what? Even George Lauritsen. I'm grateful for George for giving me the opportunity to learn and how to run a company. Even though I didn't agree with the way he did it, I'm still grateful for him. And some of the lessons we learn are what not to do as well as what to do because that's all part of the education process. Marty, I always say he did teach me by teaching me how not to. And I don't mean that necessarily derogatorily. It was different back then. He was an old-time entrepreneur. And you know what I'm talking about there. They were strong in their way or the highway. It was much more dictatorial. And Very much so. Management yeah. style. Those are the four or five major ones in my life. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? I love that you said with me, okay? In my 35 years of running my companies, I never once said someone worked for me. And that's a lesson for all would-be entrepreneurs out there. I love that you said that. The people that I 
am attracted to are the ones that are hardworking and honest. Those two qualities. If you're hardworking and honest, come on, I'll hire you tomorrow. How would you explain your management philosophy? Well, I can boil it down to win, win, and win. I believe my management philosophy, and if you want to be great in your companies and your growth and your businesses, all parties must win. What I mean by that is customers have to win. That's kind of a given. But your employees have to win. That means you have to provide a great place for them to work. You have to reward them handsomely. They don't have the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow as maybe the business owner might have, like I did. They need constant um, rewarding and motivating. They have to win. And the last piece of the puzzle that a lot of companies don't realize or think about, your suppliers have to win. You can't be a great company without great suppliers. And if you don't take care of your suppliers, you'll never be a great company. Because what happens is when, and there are a lot of companies that don't take care of their suppliers. They beat them up in price and they make them jump through hoops and then they don't pay their bills on time, you know, to the, to the supplier. Eventually those suppliers will go somewhere else. They'll go to your competition because they don't want to do business with you. So that's a piece of the puzzle a lot of people miss. The greatest compliments used to come from suppliers and say, and say John, your company is our favorite place to call on. We treated them like clients. And you know what? When we needed a favor, we needed to jump through a hoop to take care of one of our customers. When you've got great employees to jump through the hoops, and then you've got suppliers that'll jump through the hoop, we, we look so great to our clients because we pull off miracles that you can't do without great employees and great suppliers. So that's my, that's my philosophy on the... The last one we ask everybody, what would you tell the 20-year-old you today? Well, if it's to me, the 20-year-old, it would be, John, you don't have to get married so young. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I have told my sons and I've told other young people, wait, there's no rush. I don't, I don't regret, you know, my, my, my previous marriage created two great sons and my ex-wife and I still communicate. And, but when you're 20 years old, 21, 22, whatever, put that off, especially for men. They don't mature very quickly. So I think 33, 4, 5 for a man is perfect time. At least the, the woman gets to know what they're getting at that point. We, we evolve a lot from age 21 to 35. So that I know it's crazy to give out that type of advice, but to me, that would have been a good thing for me probably. To others, I just tell them to dream big. Any 20-something, dream big. You can get there. It's possible. John, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate your time and, and the stories I think are going to be impactful for the, all the people that listen. And as we've said before, a lot of these podcasts are shared with grandchildren, children, 
because they don't always listen to us, but they do when somebody's had a track record like yours and had the success that you've had. So I really appreciate that. And by the way, he does have the book, You Can Be the Best, Life Lessons from the Butcher and the Businessman. And if you want more of these stories and more of these life lessons, that's a place for you to find them. Thank you very much, John. Marty, thank you. It was so much fun to be here. John, thanks for sharing your story. Once again, John's story is one of hard work and determination to succeed, which is interesting, informative, and inspirational. This again personifies what our community is all about. And thanks to Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, the ultimate authority on Bighorn, Eisenhower Medical Center. We are so fortunate to have them in our own community. Back Nine Greens and Dominic Nappy, who not only does great work, but has been a great supporter. And Corliss Estate Wine, who has been a strong advocate for what we do and a company that really believes in giving back to our community. We look forward to bringing you another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories very soon.